Hello, this is Vinay Nadkarni of ClearBridge Investments and want to welcome you to our latest podcast. Our topic today is a simple one. With the S&P 500 closing at 2173 at the end of July and up more than 17% from the market lows on February 11th, the biggest question we are getting from institutional and retail clients is actually roughly the same. What do we do with our equity allocations at this point in the cycle and more than seven plus years into the bull market? Sometimes we get a follow-up question around how to frame valuations in this cycle, given greater than $10 trillion of sovereign debt has negative yields today. To answer that question, we've gathered some of our best and brightest at ClearBridge, Evan Bauman, co-PM on our aggressive growth and multi-cap growth strategy, Sam Peters, co-PM on the value equity and all-cap value strategy, and Jeff Schulte from our portfolio specialist team. Jeff, maybe I'll start with you and maybe frame out a big picture kind of narrative and what you think is going to drive the economy and the markets in the in the back half of the year. Well, thanks, Vinay. Um, given the macro risks abroad, I believe that U.S. equities will continue to be a place where investors allocate capital and, and pay a premium for safety. The easy money has been made, but I still expect mid to high single-digit returns over the next 12 months, coupled with 2% GDP growth. There's two reasons why the economy will continue to muddle through. First off, low inflationary expansions tend to be longer than high ones. The average low inflationary expansion since 1960 has been 33 quarters long. The current expansion has lasted only 28. So just for us to get back to the average, that's going to take us into late 2017. And given the amount of accommodation from a central bank perspective, there's a good chance that we make it past that point. And the second thing is that consumption is king here in the U.S., making up over 70% of our economic activity. In forecasting the economy, if you get the consumer right, more often than not, you're going to get the economy right. And the consumer's in the best shape that they've been in post-crisis. Employment trends are still healthy. Wage growth has been percolating up. Lower oil has created huge savings, and household net worth is up over 30% since 2007's peak. The effects of these tailwinds are starting to show up in the sales numbers as well. If you look at last month, core retail sales were up half a percentage point month over month with upward revisions for April and May. And this is exactly what you want to see for our economy to continue to move forward. But what about earnings? Earnings growth has been negative for quite some time, but I believe that we're close to an inflection point. The negative performance of energy materials should no longer be a headwind, but more importantly, manufacturing PMI has been up five out of the last six months, and it's firmly in expansionary territory. Manufacturing PMI tends to lead year-over-year changes in earnings per share by six months. So if history is any indication, we should see an earnings rebound in the back half of this year. There's also a couple of additional factors that should give people confidence. Since the February lows, small caps have led, followed by mid-caps and then large. This is a bullish pattern from a technical standpoint, indicating that this rally really does have some staying power. Also, I'm I'm sure everybody's heard the mantra, don't fight the Fed. That saying has officially changed to don't fight global central banks. Every major central bank has been working in a coordinated fashion since the February lows and more recently after Brexit. And they've essentially created the global central bank put on the market, providing a floor for risk assets. It's created an abundance of liquidity, which is a great recipe for higher stock prices. And the last thing I'll mention is that the largest buyer of stocks is still in the market, corporations. Buybacks during the first quarter were the highest rate that we've seen since Q3 2007, but the frenzy's not over yet. 
If you look at the forward earnings yield of the S&P 500, it's above 6%, while the after-tax cost of borrowing in the bond market is below 4%. That's a huge spread. And as long as this spread persists, corporations are going to continue to have an incentive to buy back their shares. So even though the stock market's at an all-time high, a healthy consumer, a good technical picture, plenty of liquidity, and strong corporate buybacks makes the U.S. markets a good place for allocation. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Evan, I know given yourself and Richie, we're much more public of your views uh, on the overall oversold condition of the market in February. How would you characterize kind of the move from here, and how would you frame the opportunities and risks in the market from here? Yeah, so let me take it back to, to last summer, um, where we were actually somewhat cautious on the broad market, and, and we were actually holding uh, double-digit cash in, in the fund and, and the uh, products that we manage. And I think that the concerns back then, back in June and July of last year, was multifold. One, the market hadn't had a double-digit correction since the fall of 2011. Um, you had growing bullishness or at least complacency as the uh, prevailing market sentiment. You had basically 10 or 12 stocks leading the market to all-time highs with very little participation from a lot of the rest of the market. And you had uh, the Fed and, and the dollar becoming concerns for, for equities. Fed was talking about aggressively raising rates. The dollar had basically been straight up. And so you had preconditions, I won't say for a market top, but for a more meaningful correction to, uh, I'd say, make us more bullish on things. And really, since last summer, all of what I just mentioned has changed. Uh, August 24th, you had the big market. It wasn't a crash, but it was a, a de facto crash with the uh, S&P down significantly, down over 500 points. A lot of blue chip stocks down 20% on the open on August 24th. The VIX index over 50, at least uh, temporarily. And so you had a pretty, pretty um, at least a market shock in August, and then followed by another correction in September, where we became much more bullish coming into uh, the period that you mentioned in February was starting this year, we had a, a real, I'll call it a, a good market correction. January, we had a waterfall sell-off, a waterfall decline of over 10%. You had a, a, a classic test of the lows back in February. And, and all of the um, items that I mentioned earlier in terms of sentiment became almost panicky in February. And then you had um, the Fed really backing off uh, aggressively tightening rates. As Jeff said, you don't want to fight the Fed. And clearly the Fed was becoming more accommodative in the first quarter. Um, I'll also mention that you had an ongoing significant correction in commodities that basically ended in January and February with almost a, what we termed a margin call. You had enormous forced selling and liquidations in the more commodity-sensitive parts of the market. Areas like biotech endured multiple 20% corrections uh, starting last summer and really um, through, I guess, the, the uh, middle of June of this year. So you had a number of parts of the market that had meaningful corrections. Sentiment turned very negative. Interest rates declined, and, and I, I guess you could say the last um, the last correction we got was clearly around Brexit, which was short but sharp, and again took uh, interest rates over 200 basis points lower. Um, the Fed basically completely backed off any kind of uh, aggressive posturing in terms of raising interest rates, and you had, um, as Jeff mentioned, a lot uh, in terms of earnings actually improving earnings results from a lot of parts of the market, decreasing valuations in a lot of parts of the market. So, Vinay, in answer, answer to your question, yeah, the market's up a lot 
since the February lows, but you actually have certain sectors like biotechnology trading at multi-year, in fact, close to all-time lows on, on a price-to-earnings basis. So, you know, Richie and I manage the portfolios with clearly a very bottoms-up view. We're business owners. There's a lot of the market we don't own, but the sectors that we're involved in, which are primarily healthcare, uh, parts of the U.S. media space, um, some parts of technology like storage, which are still at historically uh, very cheap valuation levels, and then energy, which even though you've had a broad-based rally in commodity stocks, you still have some quality assets at sub-historical valuation levels. From where we sit as as managers who run clearly a very high active share, very differentiated-looking portfolio with some big underweights as well, we feel like there's a sizable room for upside in terms of valuations. The, The likelihood for consolidation in areas like healthcare and media remain very significant. And I think M&A, you know, Jeff referenced the uh, decreasing interest rates, the increased liquidity, and the fact that management teams of large corporations have not only been buying their own stocks, but as they gain uh, more confidence, they could very well buy other businesses at, with, with re- where rates are uh, currently. You could, you could pay big premiums and still make those deals very accretive, as we've seen recently in tech and healthcare. So, um, in terms of conclusion, feel great about what we own. I think the market itself, back in February, we thought the market would hit, hit uh, significant all-time highs this year. We're sticking to that, but given the size of the broad market rally, I'll say we, we feel uh, better about the sectors and the companies that we own than a lot of other parts of the market right now. Great. Thanks, Evan. Sam, moving on to your thoughts. I know your second quarter commentary thoughtfully laid out um, you know, that Brexit didn't change much about the uncertainties of the cycle, which have largely been deflationary worries, but did reinforce the elevated risks of politics and policy, both fiscal and monetary. And it's always great to get your, your views just kind of on the overall market. But I, I wonder also, have you updated that view on, on, on kind of equity prices and equity risk premiums with the nice bounce back in equity prices post-Brexit? Yeah, no, uh, thanks, Renee, and I'll echo a lot of what the other uh, gentlemen have said. But, you know, the, the, the first thing, and not to be flip, you know, but with, with indexes at highs, you know, the first answer is don't buy the indexes. And, uh, you know, you've got two very active managers on the line, and, and we certainly don't buy the indexes. So the, the key of that, and we always do this, I think, across ClearBridge, but you got you have to focus on absolute value and really in our strategies, you know, we spend all our time looking at the underlying business value, sort of regardless of where we are in the cycle. Um, the beauty of our approach is, you know, we're not hamstrung by the cycle, so we expect that, that price-to-value gaps that we look to exploit, they're going to change over time. Sometimes they're in healthcare, sometimes they're in energy, sometimes they're in staples. You name it, we'll look across the market to find it. And the fact is right now there, there are many stocks out there that have very attractive absolute valuations, and the key also that they're closer to trough fundamentals than peak. So, you know, you don't want to buy just a low PE because a lot of times the E can be inflated or over-earning, and that's not the case in what we're finding. So, you know, the problem that we're, we're seeing broadly, and I think it is being addressed by these concerns from clients, is, yeah, the, the indexes are at highs, but they're getting pulled up by record high valuations, really in low volatility and defensive stocks that have been boosted by low rates, the, the quote-unquote bond proxies, if you will. And, and unfortunately, or fortunately, really for our strategy, valuation does go hand-in-hand hand with price volatility. 
and price volatility it creates this emotional response that we all have seen over our careers. You know, it drives excess selling, and you get a mispriced stock out of it. The amazing thing, and we've really been addressing it, is just with the indexes at highs and people thinking we're lying the cycle, they're so allergic to volatility right now that the valuation opportunity is alive and well. And, and, and really, uh, you know, we can exploit it pretty fully because of that. And what you have to look for, though, is, is again, not allocating capital through index funds, which is what most people are doing. But to really get at the return, you have to, to go beneath the indexes and find sectors. And, you know, I'll echo what Evan just said. You know, if you look at large cap biotech versus the rest of healthcare, you're at all-time uh, valuation troughs. And then if you look at, at healthcare versus another, you know, somewhat growthy or defensive group like Staples, healthcare is at a, a 10% discount. So you can buy biotech, at, you know, at a, a discount to the sector, and the sector's at the cheapest decile, cheapest 10% versus staples. So anybody that says, oh, I, you know, I can't find anything, I can't find any values, I just don't think they're, they're doing enough work. Um, and we're also finding in, in power and energy, parts of gas, we're finding opportunities there, parts of legacy tech, and in, in hated financials. I think that's where we probably differ a little bit from, from Evan and a lot of people, but, you know, as deep value managers, um, we continue to find sort of opportunities there. And then to the spirit, you know, the broader part of the question, you know, you talked about Brexit, and, and everybody, again, had gotten, you know, the, the deflationary uh, doom scenario, you know, that's been so well vetted. It was ready to go. Evan mentioned the sharp correction right after Brexit. And then, lo and behold, it didn't play out the way people thought. Credit spreads didn't blow out like people thought. Uh, we didn't continue to get this sort of waterfall sell-off that I think people expected. And, and the question is why, and, and, I, and I think one of the reasons is we've gotten so conditioned and so used to this deflationary impulse in the market that a lot of assets are priced that way. I mentioned how expensive low volatility and defensive stocks are. Well, they've been bid up by this continued rinse, wash, repeat cycle of, of deflationary fear. And so the thing that I, you know, am on the radar for is – Okay, what, what is it highs? What are pulling indexes to highs? Well, it is these defensive stocks that in many cases have peak fundamentals and are being very flattered by low rates. So to me, the real risk in the market where you can have permanent losses of capital is if interest rates go the other way. Now, most people say, how in the world is that ever going to happen? And, the, and, and frankly, I don't know. But one of the things I posited is we're in this pretty uh, interesting and in some cases nasty political cycle um, but, you know, these politicians are starting to understand how much populist anger there is in the system. That's what Brexit was about. That's what's going to play through the U.S. election cycle. And I just think the policy response we're going to get is fiscal, uh, fiscal uh, expansion and experimentation. And, you know, the monetary policy we have now is so experimental, none of us would have dreamed about it happening the way it has before the financial crisis. I think we're going to get a commensurate level of fiscal experimentation over the next several years, and why wouldn't they? Um, politicians want to get elected and stay elected, um, and, and the, the fiscal policy response is the most direct way to do that. And in the old days, you know, they'd be hamstrung or, or stopped by yields, the old bond vigilantes from the early 1980s. They're not around. Um, the bond markets with over you know, almost 40% negative yielding sovereign debt, they're begging people for this fiscal response. So I think we're going to have it, um, and if we do, that could be a huge policy change that would really cause a tail risk, not further deflation, but, but a possibility of higher rates. That's what we're worried about. 
And I think other people should be worried about, again, with 30 to 40 percent of the world's sovereign debt at negative yields. So let me ask you a follow-up around that, uh, Sam, because I think you talked about it. You'd like to buy stocks with low, you know, cheap valuations, but at trough fundamentals where the companies aren't over-earning. The case we get against financials is how do how do you assess that fundamentals are trough when this cycle feels so different? So how would you get somebody as 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 a portfolio where financials are among your largest, um, you know, active overweights? How would you contextualize kind of fundamentals in financials aside from the interest rate? dynamic well i think i think part of this will echo jeff's uh comments that the u.s is a safe haven Un unlike european financials and a lot of financials outside the u.s um yeah you're you're not going to earn in the new regulatory environment and low rates you're absolutely not going to earn the return on equity that they used to and by the way you know when they were earning 25 to 30 percent returns on equity and everybody loved them they were about to blow up the system so so you don't want that um, but the fact is you can buy a lot of US financials at or below tangible book which is absolutely a distressed valuation but you can put together a portfolio of financials that are have ROEs returns on equity above their cost capital so that you're actually getting paid to wait they're actually creating value today and and the the key is you've got to look at management teams. You've got to find management teams that get the joke, that understand how much pressure they're under from regulatory and rates, and aren't saying, hey, things are about to get better, so we don't have to worry about it, but are actually doing things to survive and do reasonably well in this environment. So the key is valuations are so cheap that you can find U.S. financials that are more than discounting a continuation of the rate and regulatory environment. Um, and then if, if, again, if rates go higher, these things are not getting flattered. In fact, they're getting uh, compressed and, and killed by the current environment. But if we get higher rates, they'll do much better. And to me, that's the perfect hedge against the world changing. But you've got to get paid to wait. You can't be foolish on this because a lot of financials are under pressure. So the way I'd summarize it is when do you get in trouble with financials is when their balance sheets are stretched and they're over-earning on the income statement. That's where we were in 2007. Today, balance sheets are in the best shape I've seen in my 20-plus year career, and they're massively under-earning on the income statement. So I'm willing to sit around and wait until something happens that does a, a little more of a tailwind on the income statement. Great. Evan, you know, uh, Sam brought it up a little bit, too, and you, as somebody who's invested across healthcare probably since the infancy of the biotech era, it's rare to see the opportunities that you see from a valuation perspective. But you also see, I think, pretty good fundamentals. You know, this morning, Ionis with good kind of, uh, 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 you know, uh, data on one of their readouts um, stock up significantly today. How do you think of um, fundamentals around biotech aside from the from the valuation kind of um, attractiveness that's there and, and how do you think about it as a long-term owner who doesn't necessarily trade these things and really owns them through multiple cycles yeah so so i own us and actually it's partner biogen so we own both but um i think it's it's a good example of how much unmet need there still is out there in the healthcare space globally speaking and their, their drug is for a rare disease called spinal muscular atrophy which is essentially a deadly disease in infants and, and, and certain children. There's two types of the disease. But it just speaks to the fact that, that even if you, you look at you know, the election and fears over drug pricing and all the, the negatives out there, which has caused this valuation compression, there are still so many large addressable markets, areas like Alzheimer's disease, which Biogen is working on a number of drugs in that area as well. 
rare disease, of which spinal muscular atrophy is one, which are 95% of rare diseases today, many of which are inherited diseases, still go untreated. Um, and these are, these are obviously costly uh, R&D projects, but success in an area like rare disease or Parkinson's or Alzheimer's are obviously still areas like cystic fibrosis, muscular dystrophy, MS, cancer. I mean, there's still some very large areas that still go untreated today. So we've always said we don't own everything in healthcare, even though about a third of the portfolio is in healthcare companies. A lot of those are uh, therapeutics and, and biotech and specialty pharmaceutical pharmaceuticals uh, companies. It's, a, it's really a subset of these companies that we focus on, which are innovative, that are finding novel treatments for these big unmet needs. And you've had, even with the uh, recent rally back, the biotech, broad biotech index, still down about 25% off its last summer highs, as we, we've all touched upon. Some of the big biotechs are at um, some of the cheapest valuations versus cash flow and earnings they've been at in their history. And as you said, we've invested in this space since the early 80s, and the stocks have never been at this type of discount to both the broad market as well as to uh, you know, to their peers. So um, to me, you can separate biotech in two halves. You have the big companies that are generating cash that are self-financing type business models, and bio, uh, Biogen's a good example of, of that type of company where they'll generate north of $20 per share of earnings over the next 12 months. Even with, with the rally today, the shares trade at 15 times earnings, which is a discount to the market, and, and, and obviously they have some very positive uh, fundamental momentum, having uh, considerably beat earnings by over 10% in their last reported quarter. Stocks at 15 times earnings, they generate billions of dollars of free cash flow per year, and they have the opportunity to, to, to target some of these large addressable markets. The other half of biotech is clearly much more speculative. Uh, a lot of the early stage companies in the healthcare space, some of the small and mid-cap biotechs, are, are down 50%, 60% off their highs. And in those cases, a lot of those companies are very, uh, very much dependent on the capital markets. They burn through a lot of cash. While they have some unique mechanisms to treat some of these big unmet needs, they burn a lot of cash as they move these drugs through the clinic. A lot of those types of companies are one or two product companies that are, have uh, can have very binary outcomes, stock up big or down big based on clinical outcomes. In my opinion, with the stress in the credit markets and the way that the capital markets have viewed healthcare with really a, um, a, a big slowdown in the IPO and the secondary market, companies that are really stressed to raise capital. When I talked about a high likelihood for continued merger and acquisition activity in healthcare, I think the bigger companies like Biogen, you can include Amgen, uh, names like Allergan, could very well be acquiring some of the early stage science-oriented companies that need cash and right now can't access it in the, in the public market. So bigger companies probably uh, could be targets for some of the large pharmaceutical companies. Smaller companies could be targets for some of the mid and, and earlier stage profitable biotech. So it's a pretty exciting time with all the negativity and, and concerns around the election. And obviously that does present uncertainty. I think in many cases that's in the stock prices. And you, know, you want to buy stocks, as Sam discussed, when there's a lot that can go right that's not in the stock price, and, and the downside risk on a uh, historical PE uh, basis is pretty minimal. And I think that's still where you are right now in the, uh, the healthcare space in terms of specifically the, uh, the names that we're focused on.
Great. So, Jeff, we started with you kind of for big picture. Well, maybe we'll close with you. Uh, Sam talked a little bit about financials, uh, Evan, a little bit about healthcare. Is there an area on a micro level you'd want to highlight is just where you might see some market opportunities today? Yeah, to, to me, technology offers a good risk reward at this point in the cycle. Tech forward PEs are noticeably below where they've stood at other points in the past 15 years. And given that the fact we're in the eighth year of a bull market, not many sectors can boast that claim. So some of the Glamour stocks do carry sky-high valuations, but the sector overall is not expensive. The forward PE as of the end of the month is at 16.5, which is pretty comfortably below the 20 handle that we saw at the last peak. And the reason why tech isn't expensive is because investors have de-risked their portfolios during the two sell-offs that we saw this year in January and after Brexit, which I believe is a, should have been viewed as a buying opportunity. Business confidence is a little bit lower uh, than I would hope for because most corporate managers are reluctant to spend due to the uncertainty about the upcoming elections and what the ramifications of Brexit are. But as we get closer to November, I do think that we're going to have some more clarity on both of those fronts. So corporate managers and investors both should get a little bit more comfortable in the space. The one thing that does get me excited about IT is that the forward earnings growth of the sector is over 9%. When you contrast that to sectors like utilities that have higher multiples for much, much lower growth, there's going to be a good opportunity for a re-rating upward. Also, a lot of the larger players in this space have rock-solid balance sheets, tons of cash, and relatively low debt, and I think that's going to be a good backdrop for continued M&A activity. And if you look over the last couple months, you've seen some banner deals with Microsoft's $26 billion offer for LinkedIn. Uh, You saw Arm Holdings get a $32 billion offer just last week. With rates being as low as they are and and valuations being attractive as well, I don't think that this is going to be something that reverses anytime soon. And for those stock pickers that know this space, it's going to be a good 12 to 24 months. Great. Well, I want to thank Jeff, Evan, and Sam uh, for their always thoughtful comments. Uh, Just close with uh, thank you for downloading this uh, version of the latest podcast. Uh, We hope this is an uh, ongoing dialogue with you. Please uh, go to our uh, refurbished website, clearbridge.com, to download this. And frankly, come to us with ideas for future podcasts, things that are relevant on your mind that we can address in a real-time fashion. With that, thank you, and have a great day.